Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. For our 70th episode we are headed back to Europe. As I added up the foreign downloads, the most popular country in the world that I have not covered yet where I have the most listeners is Germany. I have listeners there in Berlin, Bad Oyenhausen, and Parts Unknown. So today we will cover a sad but interesting case out of Germany from the 1980s known as the girl in the box. And it's actually as I got into this case, it's going to be another one of the three-part series. Uh, as I started typing, there's just too much information to cover in one case, it turned into two parts, and it turned into three. A big thank you to Don and Jada on Spotify for dropping a nice comment on the Matthew Shepard episode. I appreciate the kind words, and I will do my best to keep up the great work. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make the donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can make free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And after CrimeCon, I'll be sending out True Blue Crime merch to anyone who has ever donated via Patreon and or PayPal, so feel free to donate now for your on-air mention and some future merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Lake Amercy is named after the Emmer River that feeds the large, post-glacial lake in Upper Bavaria, Germany. Located a half hour south of the city of Munich, The lake is home to several small villages filled with cottages that often serve as vacation homes for Munich's upper-class residents. The lake has a surface area of roughly 8 square miles and offers multiple recreation and leisure activities such as water skiing or travel around the lake on historic steamer paddle ships that date back to the 18th century. The small villages around the lake offer authentic German cuisine and when paired with a large mug of Bavarian beer, they are the perfect way to enjoy the culture and beauty of the region. The area is also known for its extensive trail network around the lake, offering hiking and biking trails to travel between the picturesque small towns. The photos and feel remind me more of a historic version of Lake Tahoe outside Reno, Nevada, and Bavaria as a whole is one of my top travel destinations. I spent a day and a half in Bavaria during my month-long overseas training with the U.S. Army before we did our tour in Kosovo and toured Kaschelnuschwanstein and the city of Munich and had a few too many beers at the Hofbrau House but enjoyed every minute of my stay. The area is known for tourism and quiet beauty, but in September of 1981, a crime occurred in this pristine area that shocked all of Germany, Europe, and the world. And while the case was technically solved, there is still plenty of controversy about the investigation and the conviction of the main suspect. This is the story of the girl in the box, or in German, Das Madchen in der Kiste. Ursula Hermann was born on November 24, 1970 in Bavaria, Germany. She was from a middle-class family and loved playing the piano and practicing gymnastics. Described as a sweet and bubbly child, she was said to have a lively attitude and would do anything for her friends and family. She grew up in the town of Etching, located on the northern shore of Lake Amercy. On the afternoon of September 15, 1981, 
Ursula and her brother Michael had piano lessons after school. After her piano lessons, she rode her bike alone to her cousin's house in nearby Schondorf, located on the northwest shore of the lake. The towns are roughly 4 kilometers or 2.5 miles apart from each other and are separated by a rich forest that is approximately 4 square kilometers or 2 square miles in size. After arriving at her cousin's home in Schondorf, the two girls biked to the gymnastics class. The class was only an hour, but instead of biking back to etching from the class, she went back to her cousin's house and ate dinner with the family. At 7.20 p.m., her mother phoned the house requesting Ursula to come home. It had been the first day of school that day, and with the addition of piano lessons and gymnastics, it had been a full day for Ursula. It was also just starting to get dark, and her mother wanted Ursula to start the 10-minute bike ride before it got too dark outside. After saying her goodbyes, she headed off in the direction of her home on her red bicycle. Around 7.50 p.m., Ursula still hadn't arrived home, so her mother phoned the house in Schoendorf again, and panic set in as she was told Ursula had left around 25 minutes earlier for the 10-minute return trip. The response from family was immediate, as Ursula's father headed out on the trail from Etking, and her uncle took the same trail from Schoendorf. When the two met in the middle, with still no sign of Ursula, they feared the worst. The authorities were contacted, and within an hour, police officers, firefighters, family members, and neighbors headed out into the rainy night looking for little Ursula. A scent-tracking dog picked up her scent along the path and led searchers 20 meters off the path to her discarded bicycle. Ursula was nowhere around, and the calls from the searchers into the night went unanswered. And we'll take a little pause here. So to describe this forest, I guess today it's not as overgrown as it was back in 1981, but they described this as being a very thick overgrown forest so you've got it's it's mainly pines uh, firs um, the evergreen style trees uh, but there's a lot of lower canopy things as well so small growth on the bottom shrubs smaller trees so from even though this bike is this red bike is only 20 meters in off this path which so roughly 60 feet it, it couldn't be seen from the path one it's starting to get dark out but two like i said the this this area of the of the forest is just so thick and so it's going to create all types of havoc for these searchers when you add in the fact that it's raining it's now dark and again you've got this really thick it's just not a maintained forest so it's it's just left to its natural growth patterns which again it just makes it difficult to get through the search was suspended for the night and searchers went home to get some sleep and get ready for a full day of searching once the sun rose the next morning. The rain that had started overnight continued into the next day and the searchers donned rubber boots and raincoats to walk through the woods. The woods were bordered on the north by some farmland, the east by the lake, and the road that connected Schoendorf and Eichsching to the, on the, was on the west. Most of the southern border of the forest was part of a large private boarding school that is known today as Landheim Schoendorf. The school consists of 27 buildings, sports fields, and a private boat dock for the lake. It housed children from some of Germany and Europe's political and business elite. Aided by a helicopter that scanned the open areas in the lakeshore, the search also included boats on the lake and divers that looked in the shallower portions of the deep lake. By midday, news of the missing child had spread across Germany. 
The area was known for its quiet, safe atmosphere, and many were shocked to learn of the suspicious disappearance of the daughter of a teacher and a housewife. The day would pass with no further leads to the girl's location or status. By Thursday morning, Ursula had been missing for roughly 36 hours. The phone rang in Ursula's home, and when her parents picked up the phone, there was silence and then the sound of a familiar jingle, like the one that played before the local radio station's traffic report. This was followed by more silence and a second playing of the jingle. This exact phone call repeated several times throughout the day, and eventually police set up a recording device to capture the strange calls. While the search of the woods continued, still no sign of Ursula was found. And I think this is really difficult. I mean, yes, this is a very thick, very hard forest to search, and we are going to see a search later on that's that's a little more extensive. But it, it's not like it's a you know a state park that's a thousand or more acres. You know, it's this area is probably a few hundred acres. And while that's large to a certain degree, it shouldn't be so large that they're not able to find this missing girl, at least not under normal circumstances. They, they're able to find her bike, so they assume that, you know, one of two things. Either she, for some reason, went into the woods on her own, dropped her bike off, and then got lost in the woods. But if that's the case, she should be found somewhere, either alive or unfortunately deceased, but it should be pretty easy to locate her or somebody somehow snatched her off this trail and got her to a vehicle and drove off so at some point the search is going of these forests is going to become kind of secondary to the investigation especially with the start of these strange phone calls and then friday around noon a letter was delivered via the post office to ursula's home the note was written in broken German using words cut out of tabloid magazines and glued to the paper. The ransom letter stated that the kidnappers had Ursula and if they wanted to see her alive again, they needed to pay two million Deutschmark, which is roughly three million dollars today. And this was one of the more difficult conversions I've had to make just because Obviously, the Deutschmark doesn't exist anymore. It's since gone to the euro. So to try to try to figure out what a Deutschmark was worth against the U.S. dollar in 1981, and then multiply that out via inflation to what it is today, I, depending on different sources, I mean, some sources said two million Deutschmark was 450,000 euro in 1981, uh, which would be roughly a little over 500,000 which actually would make it more in the like two million dollar range but then other sources said it was a million euro back then so it's it's going to be a large ransom you know so sometimes these uh foreign and foreign currency the when trying to compare it to u.s dollars i know if you're talking about mexican pesos or some Japanese yen, the, the, the numbers already start out high. Their dollar isn't a dollar. It's like, you know, a, a thousand pesos is a dollar or what, whatever the conversion is. So when you hear something like 2 million, sometimes in, in some countries, that's the equivalent of you know, $200 or, or $2,000 or something like that. That's not the case here. It is, it's, it's 2 million is, is still, would still be a very high ransom to pay, um, 
but when you translate into to dollars today, it's somewhere probably in the realm of two to three million dollars in U.S. dollars today. And again, that's that's still a pretty hefty ransom. And it would be said that basically this entire area is filled with these large estates and cabin homes. And this again, this is where people from Munich tend to have their second home, their vacation home. There's a lot of wealth in the area, uh, and there still is to this day. And so the, the thinking was that somebody may have just assumed that a little girl out for a bike ride would be potentially the daughter of a wealthy family, therefore they could afford to pay this ransom and just didn't know that she was the daughter of a, a school teacher and and a housewife. So the family doesn't have a lot of money, uh, but it may be something where the kidnappers didn't know that. It wasn't that Ursula herself was targeted specifically. It was just they, they grabbed a child that was out alone. But then that's also kind of, as we're going to learn, they would have had to have known who Ursula was and where she lived because you know they're making these phone calls to the house and they're sending letters you know to an address so a little bit of confusion on was she specifically targeted or did they somehow gain that information after the fact but we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit here the letter that they received went on to give instructions that if the family was willing to pay the ransom, they should say so during a phone call that would occur in between the jingles. It appears the suspects timed the letter delivery wrong, so the Hermans were unaware that they were supposed to say yes or no to the ransom during those strange phone calls the day before. So how this was supposed to work was there wasn't going to be any voice over the phone, which is smart on the part of the kidnappers. They're just going to play this pre-recorded jingle, and I think there was a beep, and then that was the cue for the family to talk and converse with the kidnappers and give them the kidnappers the information they needed. Well, the day before when all these phone calls came in with this jingle, beep, silence, jingle, whatever it might be, they had no idea what they were supposed to do because they didn't receive this letter until the following day. And so later that afternoon, after they received the letter, another phone call came in. As instructed, Ursula's mother advised the suspects they would pay the ransom. She demanded proof of life but received no reply. And it appears that, that it would have been that evening the suspects posted another letter, and this was received the following Monday, September 21st. In this letter, also written using cutout words in broken German, the suspects demanded the ransom be paid in 100 Deutschmark bills packed in a suitcase and delivered to an unknown location by Ursula's father, and he was to drive a yellow Fiat 600 and drive no faster than 90 kph or 55 miles per hour. And as I mentioned, the area around Lake Amercy is known to have many rich families, but the Hermans were not one of the families. They had built a home on the land that had been purchased decades earlier by the family's grandfather. And we actually see this a lot here, at least where I live in Minnesota, is you could purchase land, uh, especially back in the, they're talking about land here in Germany that was purchased decades before 1981. But in Minnesota, I know you could purchase land in the 60s, 70s, even the 80s around certain lakes or communities or whatever it might be that was pretty cheap that 
the value of that has just gone up dramatically. So sometimes you end up with these houses, and I know there's there's one city near where I live where people will actually buy these houses that were built in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, whatever it might be, because of the location within the specific city, and they'll have the house demolished and bulldozed so they can build uh, a you know, little mini mansion on that property spot. And so eventually what you have is you have all these big wealthy houses and families, and then you have your original homeowners that live in this neighborhood or live in this area, and they're in their, you know, still in their Rambler homes from the from the 20s, 30s, or 40s. So when an area changes wealth, it doesn't always mean that everybody in that area stays wealthy, as it was in this case. This is a middle-class family that just happened to inherit some really nice land that's highly desired by all these wealthy families. So they're surrounded by wealth. They just don't have wealth themselves. But the family was well-liked in the community, and a neighbor volunteered to cover part of the ransom while the state of Bavaria covered the rest. With the ransom ready, they waited for another call or letter from the suspects to tell them where to deliver the money, but no further contact ever came. Two weeks after she first went missing, and with over a week since they had heard from the suspects, the investigators decided to do another search of the forest near where Ursula's bike was found. This time the search was very organized with the wooded area being divided into four sections and then a grid pattern for each section was laid out so no part of the forest would be overlooked. More than 100 officers and 10 scent dogs began the search using metal rods to probe the ground for softer disturbed soil. And this is actually a very common now search and rescue or even a body recovery search that's used. I'm guessing by police departments around the world since Germany's using it here in 1981. I know our department used it as well, where if you have a very large area to search, you can't just send people out walking at random and just say, hey, go check that area. Human nature is going to have them avoid certain areas that are difficult terrain or whatever it might be, and you have to check the boxes. You have to check everywhere. So you assign somebody a certain grid area on the map and say, this is the area you're responsible for searching. And if you've searched everything from top to bottom in this area, then we can check that box and say, there's nothing in this, this search area. And you just keep doing that all the way across your, your four areas, all of the pattern, grid patterns within that area until you've either checked every box and made sure that there is absolutely nothing is in that forest or you discover something and then you know you're able to uh, stop the search because you found what you're looking for and four days into the painstaking search and 19 days since ursula went missing at 9 30 a.m someone shouted loud enough for many other searchers to hear in a small clearing their metal probe had hit something just under the surface of the ground the officer fell to their knees and started moving leaves and clay rich soil aside and found a brown blanket Removing the blanket, they found a wooden board, and then another, and soon the shape of a wooden hatch was cleared from the ground. The hatch was locked and sat on hinges, and the officer pried it open using a spade. Under the hatch, buried in the ground, was a wooden container, and in that container was the lifeless body of Ursula Erman. The officer reached into the box and removed the body as he cried. The location of the buried box was not far from the Hermann's home, and investigators rushed there to break the tragic news to her parents. 
While her mother went into a state of shock, her father simply asked investigators if his daughter suffered before she died. The answer to that question was mercifully no. Ursula had been placed into the small wooden box with no signs of a struggle, and investigators believed she was drugged before being lowered into the box. The enclosed base had been designed with the intention to hold someone the size of Ursula captive for days, and the enclosure was around five feet deep and a few feet wide on each side. The cramped but livable space had a seat that doubled as a toilet, a shelf with 21 children's books and comics, three bottles of water, 12 cans of soda, six large chocolate bars, and four packets of biscuits. The room had a light and portable radio that was tuned to the same channel the traffic jingles the suspects used during the phone calls. An attempt had been made for a ventilation system using plastic pipes that were meant to supply oxygen, but the designer had failed to provide any sort of fan that would circulate the air. It was believed that Ursula died rather quickly from oxygen deprivation and likely did so while still unconscious from whatever drug was administered to her before she was placed into the box. The box provided investigators with many insights into the crime. The box was heavy, around 60 kilos or 132 pounds, and would have required two people to haul it to the remote location. The forest was not well known to many people, and the location would have likely been scouted by someone familiar to the area. But with nothing more to go on, police offered a reward of 30,000 Deutschmarks for any information that led to an arrest of the suspect or suspects. Tips began coming in, and many in the town of Ecking pointed the finger at a man named Werner Mazarek. The 31-year-old trained car mechanic was known for three things. He was good with his hands when it came to working with wood and mechanical devices, he had a short temper, and he was massively in debt to the bank to the tune of around 140,000 Deutschmark. He was married and had two children, and his situation with money was described as desperate. He was not well liked in the community, and many felt he could be responsible for such a horrible crime. When investigators sat down with Werner, at first he could not recall his whereabouts on the evening that Ursula went missing. Roughly 24 hours later, he came up with the alibi that he was with friends and his wife playing the board game Risk all evening. Investigators searched his house and workshop, but found no evidence he was involved in the crime. And it, it does seem kind of strange at first that Werner could not come up with his whereabouts for that evening, but we do have to remember now by this time, I mean, she was not found until two weeks after she went missing, and then I don't know how long it was before they went to go talk with Werner, but my guess is it's somewhere uh, two and a half weeks to three weeks later, and if you're not expecting to have to remember what you're doing on a specific night, when police come and ask you, hey, what were you doing on the evening of blank and blank, which is two to three weeks prior, your first response might be, I don't remember, or I can't recall, especially if there wasn't anything significant. Obviously, if you're at a friend's wedding or if you work evenings and you know that was a night that you worked, you you could say what you're doing that evening. But if it was just a an evening in the middle of the week, two to three weeks earlier, it's, it's possible that on, on first memory, you're not going to recall that right away. And what you don't want to say is that you're doing something and then later find out that that wasn't what you're doing. That's going to look even worse uh, as a part of the investigation. But 
if at first you say, I don't remember, and then you go consult with your wife, consult with some friends, say, hey, the, the night that that girl went missing, yeah, we were, you know, we were playing that board game. Now, at the same time, this is huge news. This is a big story. So you would think that when you hear the next morning that this little girl that you live near and you're, if is from your town goes missing, that that would create a little bit of a memory retention for events surrounding that time period. So you might remember if you heard the next morning, like, hey, this girl went missing, you might think, is there a chance that I saw her? What was I doing the night before? Maybe maybe I saw her riding her bike. Maybe I saw somebody take her. You, most normal people upon hearing that news would try to think if they could help in any way. And that's going to kind of create, again, this, this stored memory in their brain that after this really important news broke, I remember what I was doing. And in this case, Warner isn't. But again, it, it, this isn't a requirement for people. And it's going to be said later that Warner isn't the most intelligent guy. And sometimes people just don't have that capacity to be empathetic and think in that way like other people would. So again, it's possible that he never created any type of memory retention for the night before Ursula went missing. And when asked about it, he just couldn't recall and then eventually when he does figure it out it's that he's with his wife and friends playing this board game now this is going to come into question later because we know that it takes at least two people to to bring this box out here and and bury it and even bringing an unconscious child is going to be difficult to maneuver through these woods so if you needed to create an alibi for a couple of your friends as well that were involved in the crime. All of you guys playing a board game and then having your wife as part of that alibi is pretty convenient. And I think a lot of people thought that as well. It's not like his alibi put him out in a public where 20 to 30 people could say they saw him. His, his alibi could serve as an alibi for other people that are involved in the crime as well. So. It's not a solid alibi, but it is um, going to create some roadblocks for the investigation. And meanwhile, the box was being forensically examined, and a fingerprint was found on a piece of duct tape inside the box. The print did not match Werner's or any of the thousands of locals that voluntarily submitted to fingerprinting. By January of 1982, three months into the investigation, Werner was still the strongest suspect. He, along with two of his friends, were arrested and brought into the local station for interrogation. They were questioned for days before finally being released without charges. And it didn't name his friends, and it didn't name the connection, but my guess is going to be that these are the two friends that he was playing, or that he claimed he was playing Risk with, and it's for the exact reason that I said before. A lot of the times a crime like this, kidnapping, kidnapping for ransom, is not a single person crime it's a, it's a group crime and police are probably thinking this as well and again it's very convenient that two of his friends that could also be involved in this crime are part of the alibi for the night before when Ursula went missing just as easily as we were playing risk they could be saying we kidnapped Ursula the night before so they're going to bring him into the 
police station. They're going to interrogate them for a couple days, but ultimately none of them are going to say anything that leads the police to believe that they can charge them with anything. In February of 1982, an associate of Werner's named Klaus Paffinger was questioned after his landlord told police that around the time of the murder, Klaus was driving a moped around town and strapped to the side of the moped at all times was a shovel. At first, Klaus claimed to have no knowledge of the crime, but after two days of questioning, during a break while the investigators were out of the room, Klaus turned to a secretary and asked, what if I know something? The investigators learned of this and asked Klaus what he knew, and he told them in early September of 1981, Warner had paid him a thousand Deutschmark and he promised him a color television to dig a hole in the woods, a hole that he later saw a box inside. The investigators loaded Klaus into a car and drove him to the forest so he could show them where he dug this hole. But Klaus was not able to point out anything near where Ursula had been found, and upon returning to the station, he said he made the whole story up and wanted to recant it. He was questioned ten more times in the following months and refused to confess anything about digging the hole and was never charged. In the summer of 1982, Masaryk moved out of Eichling because of the stress of being thought as, as of a suspect in the case. A new detective took over and used flyers and TV to spread word about the case, but no new leads developed. The case eventually went cold and Ursula's family moved on as best as they could. While some of her family turned to faith, her oldest brother Michael, who was 18 when she went missing, made it his life mission to find out what happened to his little sister. The people of Germany moved on as well, living their lives but always remembering the unsolved case of the 10-year-old girl found dead in the box. And before we close out this episode to move on to part two, uh, tomorrow's episode, there's a couple things we'll talk about now with, with in terms of the investigation. You know, sometimes, and we've talked about in the past with critical incidents, but we, I don't know if we've talked about it much with investigations. When you have a pretty open-ended investigation like this, where many different people could be the suspect, you don't really have direct evidence pointing you towards a suspect. Uh, investigators can get what's called tunnel vision uh, when it comes to the investigation, and they, they look at one suspect, believe that to be the suspect, and, and this, this Warner guy is not a good guy. We're gonna find out some stuff that he did during the next episode not directly related to Ursula's case, but just some things from his past that are the reasons why nobody likes this guy. But this is small town Germany, much like small town America, when there's that one person that everybody thinks is a complete a-hole. Everybody, when you know a crime like this occurs, they all look and say, if it was somebody local, it had to be this guy. And so all of the eyes turn to this guy, the investigation goes to this guy, and they look and say, okay, he's a mechanic by trade, he's good with his hands, he can build stuff, this box had to be built and designed. Uh, there was a ventilation system that was designed for it, but obviously it failed because of the improper air exchange. Part of it was that this is September, so you've got leaves falling, and the wet leaves actually clogged the air intake for the, the exchanger and it might have still functioned okay but there was no forced air pushing air in to the the box so basically the box just filled with 
carbon monoxide from from Ursula's breathing. And it was said, and I, I don't know how much I mentioned it on here, but it was said there was no signs of a struggle inside the box. So it didn't appear to investigators that Ursula ever woke up and tried to get out of this box because the, I guess the material there's a material that was on the lid from the inside that was very soft and would have been easy to scratch and there was no scratch marks on it whatsoever there was no you know panic like they believed there would have been if she was running out of air all the the books and comic books were still kind of in a neat uh, arrangement on on this little desk that was in this box or the shelf I should say that served as a desk so there's really no sign like she tried to break out of her confinement so they believe that she never actually likely regain consciousness that she basically went hypoxic uh, died from lack of oxygen while she was still unconscious from some type of the drug that was administered to her uh, to make the the kidnapping easier so there's there, and we're going to get more into that in in episode three that's kind of more of the analysis uh, the breakdown of of everything that we find in regards to the box the the trail the crime the woods themselves and, and as a part of that we kind of look at some some other potential suspects um, other than this werner guy and so like i said we'll get there but it's just you know police are obviously baffled this appears to be a kidnapping for ransom gone wrong a few days or a week i should say after this kidnapping the suspects just stopped communicating altogether. They uh, investigators believe that the, when Ursula's mother asked for proof of life, uh, they, the kidnappers likely went to go check on Ursula, found that she had passed away, and panicked and just decided they weren't going to try to collect on the ransom anymore or couldn't uh, collect on the ransom anymore now that they knew that they were they were wanted for murder. And, and there's going to be something else strange. We're going to talk about it next in part two a little bit more but uh, prosecutors or investigators are going to deem this a what's called kidnapping with deadly consequences and for some reason it's treated differently than murder in germany and i guess maybe from an intent standpoint uh, there's a difference between the two if you kidnap for ransom with the intent that you're going to return this person alive i guess from the get-go your crime the intent is different in the crime however if the person dies then you have this kidnapping with deadly consequences and the big difference is is that there's going to be a 30-year statute of limitations on the kidnapping with deadly consequences versus the no statute of limitations on a homicide now i don't know of anything like this in america i can't think of anything where if homicide can be charged out if even if you there's not intent on the front end you've created a a negligence so great that this person dies and, and this goes well beyond manslaughter because you're, you're committing a crime and, and we just saw this in the in the charles newman case in episode 66 where it wasn't uh, the intent of the suspect in that case to go into Charles's house and kill the man, he went in there with the intention to steal this cash and gold out of a, a supposed vault that the guy had inside there. But because 
the crimes that he committed resulted in Charles's death, and that death was at the hands of the suspect, he was charged with capital murder based on, on the fact that the crime that he committed. So Germany has this similar thing, except they're treating it different by saying there's not intent, therefore it's not the same as a homicide, whereas in America we say, yes, it is. You cause the death of the other person while committing a, a major crime. Some states call it felony murder. Some states just call it, again, like in th that case it was Alabama. They called it, I think it was robbery with homicide or murder or burglary resulting in homicide, something along those lines. But anyway, it's it's going to be a little bit different, and that's one of the one of the struggles I have sometimes when I'm looking into these international cases is not only is law enforcement procedures different, and again, this is 1981, so I also have to go back in time to look at how things are going to be treated differently 40 years ago. But also I'm looking at a, a different, oftentimes, approach to prosecution, to trials. We're going to see some major differences in a trial coming up here that I would have never seen or we would never see in America. And which makes it interesting because I do like learning about this stuff, but it also makes it more difficult because my all my experience and knowledge is based on American law enforcement, America court procedures, and even those can be so different between states and between the states and federal level uh, that sometimes I have to do more research to figure it out. But, but again, I, I do like doing these cases that occur in other countries. For one, these cases don't always make a big splash in America especially cases from 40 years ago and I personally had never heard of this case uh, even though it was pretty well known over in Europe so again I don't mind doing these it just makes things a little more interesting I do love that uh, on the internet all the German articles about this I could automatically translate it to English I can't imagine uh, doing research on true crime uh, before you had automatic translating on on websites but but again we'll get more into the trial the, the the cold case investigation and the trial in episode or episode 71 part two of this case and then we will also cover um, like I said, some of my breakdown and analysis in episode 72 which is going to be part three of of this but that's going to be it for today thank you guys for listening Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.